right, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we, um, we, uh, we come to you today as your church uh, to worship you, and we ask that you would fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Would you open our, our eyes and our ears and our hearts and make us humble to receive your word? Uh, I pray, God, that you would be magnified, your name would be glorified this morning, and, uh, and that we would all just overflow with, with our love for you and worship for you as, uh, as we encounter your goodness through your word and through your grace that you've given us in your son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning once again, and good to be with you. If you're visiting, glad you're here. If, uh, if you've been with us for a while, it's a pretty good week for our church. Um, within the past few days, we had two babies being born, and later today, we've got a wedding. So, really good things happening. No one's... Uh, so, there we go. I thought... I can never guess what you guys are going to clap at. Um, Matthew 7. We're going to be in Matthew 7, and uh, we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We've actually only got one more week in that Sermon on the Mount. What we've seen so far for this sermon is Jesus describing the kingdom of God, describing what the kingdom of God is like, the values of the kingdom, um, what it looks like if you were to belong to the kingdom of God. And so we get the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the, the merciful, uh, the peacemakers, uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus then moves to the law of God and he reminds us of the law of God, but he pushes it deeper than just the, the surface commands into our hearts. It's not enough that you don't murder anyone in the kingdom of God, you, you can't hate, you can't hold on to that murderous hatred towards anyone. You, you, have to, you have to forgive, you have to make peace. You know, in the kingdom of God, it's not enough that you don't commit adultery. In, in the kingdom, you don't indulge in adulterous fantasies in, in your mind. He's pushing it deep down into our hearts. Jesus attacks religious hypocrisy says, in, in my kingdom, there's not going to be this, this hypocrisy. It doesn't mean that people are going to be perfect and, and people are never going to sin, but people will be sincere. They're going to mean what they say. What they say they believe, they're actually going to believe. And, uh, and we're, we're not going to look down on others because this all depends on grace, right? And as part of all this, he's revealing himself as the king of the kingdom, as the savior who actually brings us into the kingdom, um, he's, he's not just a good teacher or a good example. He is the king. Uh, now, as the sermon is coming to an end, we've seen a few warnings already. Jesus gives us another warning. And it's a warning that we consistently find throughout the Bible. It's repeated a bunch in the New Testament. And the Old Testament is, is littered with examples of people who just have ignored uh, what, what he's talking about here. And so Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The thing Jesus wants you to be aware of and look out for is false prophets or false teachers. Uh, that there are going to be people who claim that they know God's truth, and they claim they can teach you God's truth, and what they actually teach you is contrary to God's will. By no means is this uh, the only place, or one of the few places where we encounter this problem. Like I said, the Old Testament is, is littered with examples of false prophets. Jeremiah especially has to uh, deal with them. He's a prophet, and in his book, in Jeremiah, uh, it's just a bunch of times, just two of them we'll look at in chapter 5 and in chapter 14. Uh, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? And in chapter 14, uh, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, a worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. 
right? They're claiming that they know God's word, that God's delivered his word to them, and yet they're really just making it up and representing it as coming from God, speaking lies in his name. A, a prophet is someone who receives God's word and then delivers God's word. That's all that a prophet is. It's the same thing really with a teacher of God's word. We just read it and say it, and, and we interpret, like, here, here's the meaning of it, but we're trying to really get at what it actually means. We don't get to make up God's word. Like, I don't get to invent it and say anything that's not already been written down before, uh, and, and we don't get to edit it and, and change the meaning of it. We, our, our job is to deliver its real, actual meaning. It's kind of like the mail or what you would expect from the mail, right? Like the mailman, your, your mail delivery person, is they're doing a good job when they just bring the mail to you. Um, they're doing a bad job when they read it first and decide what information is, you actually need, right? Like they, they read through your stuff, they go, oh, that's a big bill. They're not gonna like that. They're gonna hate me for delivering that piece of news to them. And so let's just, let's just get rid of that. You know, like if your male person, if they start doing that, it doesn't change reality, right? Like you still owe the money. If they start keeping your mortgage from you and you stop paying it, that's gonna lead to issues. Like eventually you're gonna have to pay it and if you can't pay it, then they're gonna, you know, foreclose your house. If you don't pay your bills, they're gonna repo your stuff. That's how people treat God's word. They're, they're super comfortable. So for whatever strange reason, people are very comfortable doing that with God's word. And you look at what God says, it's so alarming in Jeremiah 5. So the prophets, they're, they're telling lies, and based on these lies, the priests are leading, but my people love it that way. They're so happy that this is what's happening, right? Uh, because the false prophets, the false, they're, ma they're making people feel good about themselves. They're telling the people what they want to hear. But again, that doesn't change reality. There's this great account in 1 Kings 22 where the king of Israel, a guy named Ahab, wants to go to war and wants the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, to go to war with him against Syria. And Jehoshaphat says, like, hey, before we do this, let's go ask the prophets if this is a good idea, if this is what God wants us to do. And so they do, they go to the prophets, and all the prophets are saying, yes, go to war, you'll definitely win, this is God's plan for you. But the vibes must have been off, because uh, we, we read this in 1 Kings 22, but Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Like, it must have sounded fishy to him. And the king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Which is just so funny. Like, what a moment of clarity for Ahab that, like, he could have gotten it, but then he just plows on ahead and he doesn't get it. Uh, he hates everything Micaiah says to him because he always tells him things he doesn't want to hear, and he likes the other prophets because they always tell him the things he does want to hear. Because he is a wicked king. And so Micaiah tells him, you're not aligned with God's will. You need to repent. God will bring judgment on you for this. And he goes, I don't want to hear that. And so I'm not going to listen to you. I hate you. I'm going to listen to all these guys over here. And that's what's really dangerous about this. You, you don't want to be in a position where you refuse to listen to hard truths because they, they make you uncomfortable or they make you feel a certain way and you don't like that. And so you decide, I'm not going to accept it. I'm going to reject this. Just because you don't want something to be true doesn't mean that it's not true. Like, if, if you ignore the truth, like that could work for a while, you could ignore the truth for a while, but there's going to eventually at some point come a reckoning. There's gonna come a time when reality is gonna catch up with you and now you have to reckon with it, you have to deal with it. If you ignore what the doctor says when the doctor says, hey, you are at high, high risk 
for a heart attack and you need to make some changes and you need to get on this and you need to start doing this and you go, well, I feel fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. You know, you don't make any changes. You reject all the recommendations, everything that he's trying to tell you. You say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do any of that. You can ignore what the doctor says about your high risk of heart attack, but you can't ignore it when you're having a heart attack. The stakes are even higher when it comes to God's word because here we're talking about eternal life, right? We're, we're talking about being, being forgiven, being reconciled to God, the promise of eternal life. And if you receive his words, because he tells you, like, there, there's a way for you to be reconciled. There's a way of forgiveness. There's a way of eternal life. This is the way. And if you don't listen to that, if you refuse to listen to the way that he's providing for you, that he's telling you, and you continue in your sin and you reject the offer of salvation that he's made, there is judgment for sin. There is a reality called hell. And because there's so much at stake in the things that God is telling us, there should be an equivalent desire to hear the truth of what God is actually saying. Even if it's not something that you like, even if it's something that you wish it was different from the way it was, there should be a pretty strong desire. Like, I want to know what the truth is so I can actually deal with the, the reality of the way that things are. But it's not the like it's not the case often enough. The uh, you know Jeremiah described God says it in Jeremiah. My people love to have it. So Paul describes it in uh, in Second Timothy, chapter four. He says this: For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is a problem 2,000 years ago, and, and it's the same problem that we have today where the criteria people use to decide if I'm gonna ex accept something or reject something is not the truth. If it's true, I'll accept it, and if it's false, I'll reject it. Instead of using truth, the criteria of what to accept and what to reject is do I like it or not? Does it sound, if it sounds good to me, I'll accept it. And if it sounds bad to me, if it's inconvenient or if it makes me feel bad, I'm gonna reject it. And that's how I determine my, my whole worldview and my outlook on life and, and the way that things are. People will not endure sound teaching. They're not going to put up with it, and it's sound teaching. It's, it's perfectly, entirely correct, and people are not going to put up with it. Instead, having itching ears, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions. They're going to gather and surround themselves with people who tell them all the things they want to hear. That's what people are going to do. They're going to find people who will affirm and validate them in the things that they want to believe. It's not surprising. And it is like one of the most quintessentially human faults you can find because it's just the first sin repeated again and again. Like if you look at the first sin that we find in the Bible as representative, it, man, it covers so much of, of our problem with God that, that everyone has and everyone carries today. Um, it, it defines our, our sinful nature. In the beginning, right, Genesis, when God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden and there's no sin in the world at all, he gives them one restriction. Uh, don't eat from that tree right there. The, don't eat the fruit from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat it, you will die. All right? Uh, and then Satan the first false teacher comes along, and we read this in Genesis 3. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then skipping ahead, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Did God really say that? 
I find it so interesting that um, so much of the false teaching that you will encounter today, if you just go online, if you just go looking, uh, if you just go visiting a bunch of churches, so much of the false teaching that you find today comes from you know, supposedly Christian leaders, scholars, preachers, pastors, teachers, um, who say the same thing Satan says right here. They get to something in the Bible that is not very popular with modern people. Uh, things like what the Bible says about sex, what it says about divorce, what it says about hell, just anything that's not very popular with most people. Um, something that Christians have been pretty clear and solid on for the bulk of church history, 2,000 years of church history. And then they go, well, does God's word really say that? No, here's, what, here's, here's what's actually going on. And then they'll show you that uh, the Bible says the opposite of what it seems to say. And does it really say that, that there's such a thing as sexual sin and, and that sex is just uh, reserved for marriage and that marriage is, is one man and one woman for life? Does, does the Bible really say that? Is that really what it's teaching? Does the Bible really say that there's uh, eternal judgment for sin, that there, there's a thing called hell? And they'll proceed to tell you, no, that uncomfortable thing that you don't like, that's not true. It's not what God's word is saying. And I'm sure it's just a coincidence that the, the, um, you know, the understanding of the Bible that they've arrived at is just a coincidence that it happens to be the very same things that everyone wants to hear and that doesn't make anyone uncomfortable. You know, it's just very convenient. Um, false teaching, it always comes from a place where y you have to start with weakening the authority of God's word. Uh, and that's what I want you to see that's at play here in Genesis 3, where first, Satan attacks God's word. He says, well, did God say you can't eat of any tree? He misrepresents it, because God didn't say you can't eat from any tree. He said that one tree. But then he questions it, right? Uh, and then he calls him a liar. Well, you are, you're not gonna die. God lied to you about that. You're not gonna die. He attacks God's character, right? God is trying to control you. He's trying to keep you from being all that you can be. But what's the real temptation that gets its hooks into Eve? Like the thing that he says that she really wants, that all of us want, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the thing that is forbidden is the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Does that mean that before they ate it, Adam and Eve are just clueless about what good and what evil are? No. It means that they have to listen to and trust God as the source of the knowledge of what's good and evil. They have to listen to what he says. They have to trust what he says. And what they do when they disobey him and they eat this fruit is they are taking the ability for themselves to determine what they believe is good and what they believe is evil. They don't have to listen to or trust what God says. They get to decide for themselves. It's a rejection of the authority of God in determining good and evil and taking that authority for themselves. And that's exactly, exactly what we do today. You even see it with, uh, with, with people who are in the churches and who say that, yeah, I'm a Christian and, and my faith is in Jesus and I want to follow Jesus, right? They'll say those things and they're in the churches. But what happens is they listen to what God says whenever he's saying things they already believe and agree with. But as soon as God says something that's difficult for them that would require them to uh, repent or change or, you know, uh, deny themselves or experience self-sacrifice in the thing that they want, they reserve the right for themselves to disagree with what God says. They'll use the same words. Well, does God's word really say that? And then, with the itching ears, they'll go and they'll find someone somewhere, some article, some blog, some teacher, somewhere, who will affirm and validate them in everything that they, they want 
to believe. Many problems with this. One of the bigger ones. Even though you are rebelling against God's authority and trying to take authority for yourself, even though you're trying to do that, God is still God. He's still the creator. He's still the king of all creation. He's still the source of everything. And he says, in rebelling against him, that only leads to death. It's just like when the doctor is telling you that you're at high risk of, of the heart attack just because you don't like to hear it. It doesn't make it not true. It doesn't create an alternate reality that you get to live in where you're not at high risk of a heart attack. In Hosea chapter 4, Hosea is another prophet of the Old Testament, and God is speaking through him. He's speaking about uh, priests who are leading the people astray. They're not teaching God's word correctly. And God says this, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They're experiencing a, a real destruction in their lives. There's real consequences of listening to false teaching. People are being led further from God. They're walking farther away from fellowship with him they go deeper into their sin. And sin, the, the, the stuff that God tells us is evil and the stuff that he tells us is good, like those are not arbitrary designations. God didn't just throw those out on a whim. He, he has reasons for what he's telling us is good and what he's telling us are evil because he has our best interests in mind. He, he loves us and he wants the best for us. And it's because he's the creator and he's the one who designed us and who designed life and just designed us the way that we are. He's the one who knows that if we live in the certain way that he's designed for us, that's gonna lead to the most freedom and peace and joy and flourishing that we could possibly experience. And when we break free from his will, that's when we get hurt. That's when we hurt other people around us. We become selfish. There's collateral damage from our sin, and we all know it. Everyone knows it. Because everyone carries regrets of things. You know, I wish I hadn't done that. I've seen what it's done, and, and I wish I'd never done that. Or I, I could have done this thing, and I didn't do it, and I, and I wish that I did. We all have those regrets. We've all got this buried guilt and hidden shame in us where you know this is true. There are things about you and there are things about your past and there are things that are in your heart you don't want anyone else to know about. You want it to stay hidden. Even if you're actually okay with it, like as long as it's hidden, you're fine with this thing, but you don't, you don't want people to know about it because if they did, you would feel ashamed. With the guilt that we carry that comes from our sin, we also carry with us a fear of judgment. That if there's a such thing as justice in the universe, if there is such a thing of, of a, a God of justice, there's a real and healthy fear of judgment because, I mean, Jesus says one day we're gonna have to give an account of our lives to God. We're gonna stand before God and give an account for the, the decisions we made, the choices we made, the words that we used. Like, is anyone looking forward to that? No, you shouldn't be. Like when my three-year-old, my daughter Amelia, when she does something she's not supposed to do and then uh, she gets upset because I, I put down the boundary and I'm going to enforce the boundary because I care about her and I don't want her to grow up to be an entitled brat. And she's not. She's just a, like a regular three-year-old. But like, you know, there are parts of parenting that's hard. And so you, you keep the boundary down and then she struggles with that. And she has a big emotional moment. And then when she's calmed down, I'll go to her and I'll say, uh, you know, hey, I, I just want to talk to you about what happened because I want to explain things to her and want to make sure she understands. And what she'll say back to me is, I don't want to talk to you, daddy. 
she'll go, uh, this one I get too, don't talk to me, daddy. And she gets upset all over again, which I get it, you know? I also don't feel comfortable at the prospect of verbalizing what I did wrong and, and, and talking about it, you know? I, I, don't, I don't look forward to giving an account. Because I know, and we all know, what we rightfully deserve from a completely honest and transparent reckoning of our lives is God's judgment for our sin. No one's as good a person as they present themselves to be. A false teacher can't help you with God's judgment because they're not guiding you to deal with reality. The, the reality of God, the reality of sin, the reality of God's offer of salvation, the reality of judgment for sin. They're not guiding you to deal with the way that life really is. Like if, if God is real, if this is true, if he's our creator, if Jesus is our savior, if these things are true, they're, they're not really guiding you to handle those things well. Truth is, like a false teacher, they, they either don't care about God, they don't really believe in God, and so they feel uh, no, no qualms with, you know, misrepresenting or twisting the things that he says, or they don't care about you. They don't care about really helping you navigate and deal with difficult and complex things. They just want to use you to build their own thing, to build their own status, build their own influence, to get money from you, whatever it is. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10, and it's a little long, but I'm gonna read through all this, starting in verse seven. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches from and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The, the false teacher, the, the thief, or the, the hired hand, the thing that they really want, like they don't want your best interest. They want to get something from you and they don't really care about you. They don't care about your soul. Uh, they don't care about your eternity. They're just getting paid, or they're getting their status, or they're getting their influence, and they're not going to put themselves at a loss for your sake. So they're not gonna risk saying something that would offend you or turn you away, because they're things they want from you. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the good shepherd who loves the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. He, he knows them. He cares for them. That's who Jesus is for you. Even though you're a sinner, Jesus lays down his life for you. He, he goes to the cross to pay your debt, to forgive you and, and to set you free. He resurrects from the grave. He defeats death so that he can give you the promise of eternal life. Those are the things he does for you. It's not something you get once you've done enough for Jesus. Like the good news of the Bible is not what you need to do for Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for you. It's, it's grace. It's a gift. It's mercy because of his love for you. 
when you surrender yourself to Jesus, when you put all your hope, all your faith in him and what he's done for you, that's when you receive it. At that moment, you are forgiven. You are welcomed into the family of God. He gives you a a new life and a new heart, and he starts to make changes in you. You're not in rebellion against God. You're at peace with God. Jesus makes peace for you at the cost of his own life. Do you know how much Jesus loves you. Do, you. do you understand how deep his love goes? How much he cares? He's not trying to get something from you that like he doesn't already have. He has everything. He's created the universe. The world is his and the fullness thereof. It's all his. He's not, he's not after your stuff. He wants a close an intimate relationship with you where you are forgiven and reconciled with him. He wants you to have eternal joy, eternal peace. And once he has you, like once he's done, once Jesus has a hold of you and he's done this work in your heart and he's, he's given you this new life, that's when you become his, you become the, one, of, one of his sheep of the good shepherd and you recognize him, you recognize his voice you start to see the differences. Like, here's what Jesus says. Here's what Jesus teaches. And what this other person is saying, like, that, that's not quite right. It's, it's leading me away from him. And it becomes all the more important because once Jesus has done this work in you and in your heart and the, your love for him is starting to grow, that's when you start recognizing the, the people who are you know, encouraging you in things that you know and you realize are sin, you realize these are things I need to repent of, they're encouraging you to embrace things that Jesus went to the cross to forgive you from. Now, these are people who are encouraging you that you don't have to listen to what God says when you don't like it. You can decide for yourself. You can determine for yourself. You hear that and you go, that's not the voice of Jesus. I know Jesus. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false teachers. When the Bible warns you about something once, it's a good idea to pay attention. When it resurfaces this warning again and again and again and again, it's foolish to not think about it, to not look around and go, where do I see this? Where is this happening? What does it look like? And I, I do find it interesting. I, I think Christians are aware. I think we know. Uh, I think we are aware of false teaching and we see it around us. But what's interesting, false teaching is something that arises from within the church, right? And, and I don't think that false teachers are really Christians. Jesus says they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're dressed up like a Christian, but they're not actually one. So like, I get that, but they are with the sheep, right? They are in the church and they use the church language and they look like a Christian and people think they are Christians and that's why they're able to be successful in, uh, in, in uh, leading people astray. But false teaching is an internal threat. It's not an external one. And, and maybe this is just me. Maybe uh, this is not how anyone else sees it. Um, but from, from my perspective, I think, think I tend to see Christians getting more fired up about uh, external threats to the church than the internal ones. Um, a while ago, I was talking with this guy who I, I really like this guy and I respect him. He's a very kind man and he loves Jesus. Uh, but he's also super gotten into politics and he was trying to persuade me that I should be more political and advocate for more political things in my preaching. And I was just trying to persuade me, here's all the reasons that you should do this and here's why it's so important. And um, one of the things that he appealed to was, um, you know, you look at the founding of our country and the principles it was founded on, principles of freedom, and, and our freedoms are under attack and God wants us to be free, he wants us to have freedom. And I was just thinking, I don't know about that. 
not, like when, when the Bible talks about freedom, it's not talking about freedom in that way. It's talking about freedom from sin. And you look at how Christianity started. Uh, Christianity was born under the heel of the Roman Empire, which you might not feel this way, but was in fact far more oppressive than the United States government is. Um, I can't tell you a single verse. Like, I've read the whole Bible. I've looked at it. I can't tell you a single verse that was aimed at, you know, resisting the authority of Rome. We need to get freedom from Rome. We need to start this revolution and get out of here. I can point you to several verses that tell you you need to be a good citizen of Rome. Like, don't sin. Resist when they tell you to sin, but other than that, be a good citizen of Rome. When you look at church history and you look at the state of the church today, what you find is the church actually does a fairly good job of growing under adverse conditions. That's how it started. And it exploded across the world. And in spite of opposition, it has grown. And you look at places today like China and, and the church is growing there. You know the place where the evangelical church is growing the fastest in the world today is in Iran. That's kind of not what you'd expect. And you look at the church here and the church is experiencing decline. I mean, just strictly by the numbers. And I know that God is working and God is moving and there's a difference between, um, you know, the, what, what you see presented as the church and what the real church is. I understand that. But we're in a place, and I'm not complaining that we're in a place that we can freely meet and worship openly with, with no threat to our, our lives or, you know, incarcerate. I'm not saying that I want some of that, but I don't think that's the thing we should be the most fired up about, uh, the threat to the church. I think we should be much more conscious of and focused on and observant when it comes to the internal threats arising from within the church, of which false teaching is prominent. According to recent research from Pew, P-E-W, I feel weird saying it, but it's what it's called, Pew Research, um, 18% of self-professed Christians in the United States don't believe the Bible is the word of God, and a further 7% don't know if it's the word of God, of, of God or not. That's 25%. That's one in four self-professed Christians in the United States cannot say that they believe the Bible is the word of God. That's alarming. 22% don't believe in hell, and another 8% are not sure. That's 30%, almost one in three, who can't say that they believe hell is real, that the Bible is clear in teaching about hell. 45% of Christians believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases, not as an exception in an emergency, but for basically any reason you can think of, you just don't want to have a, a baby. It should be legal. 45% self-professed Christians. 54% believe homosexuality should be accepted and 44% strongly favor same-sex marriage. These are some basic things that have had very strong agreement through 2,000 years of church history. The Bible is the word of God. Hell is real. The Bible's sexual ethic there's not been confusion about what the Bible teaches on these things. And yet now, because false teaching has crept in and taken root, it's led these people who are close. They call themselves Christians. They have some desire to follow Christ and they're being led astray. How can we spot false teaching. What do we look at? 
I mean, there's a lot of answers. And there's more answers that the Bible gives, but here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says you can recognize false prophets, you can recognize false teachers by their fruits, by the results that their doctrine, their false teaching is producing. Good teaching will produce healthy fruit. A healthy tree produces good fruit. But a diseased tree, a false teaching, will produce bad fruit. I think there are two places we look at and we see this, this fruit showing up. When you look at uh, pe- people who are teaching false things and you look at, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, some things that come out. So the two places that you can look for this fruit are in the, the lives of the people who are giving this false teaching um, and in their ministries. So in their lives, this is usually something that comes out after there's been some sort of, you know, being exposed, uh, you know, it, that for a while it was hidden from the public eye, it was behind closed doors, it was in their homes, and uh, you didn't really know what was going on there, but when the word gets out, you see how unhealthy it was. You see there's, there's dysfunction, you see there's um, big, big egos and being self-absorbed, being domineering, uh, there was an affair, or there was shady stuff with money, and, and those things come out. Um, there are things that you can see, though, and if you, if you look just a little bit more closely, you see, like, some of the people who are these false teachers, their lives, they don't really look like Jesus. They look like other rich or, you know, celebrity people. Like, their lives are so um, materialistic and the wealth that they surround themselves with uh, and like the, you know, the cars that they drive or the extremely expensive fashion that they put on themselves. And just they're projecting this image of like material wealth where you look at that and you go, I, it just doesn't look like Jesus to me. It doesn't look like they, they love what Jesus loves. It doesn't look like they're following what Jesus says. They, they claim to be a follower of Jesus, but, but the substance just isn't there. And so you, you can look, what's the fruit of, of their lives where they've been uh, prom- promoting this false teaching? And then you look at the fruit of their ministry. Now, I think this one is more evident. What's the, what's the actual impact that's happening in real people's lives? Are people... Uh, putting their faith in Jesus? Are their lives being changed? Are their, their chains being broken? Are they overflowing in worship for God? Are people growing to be more like Jesus? You see the fruit of the Spirit being produced in people through this ministry. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things are, are being born in the lives of people who are following this teaching that they're promoting comes from Jesus. Or, if, if you look at, you know, the short term or even the long term, are people just getting a, a self-esteem boost? They're excited about what they're being told and they feel good about it and, and it pumps them up for a little bit. But when it comes to the long term and life doesn't go awesome, and the self-esteem boost isn't enough to carry them? Are they, are they drifting further away from God? Are they departing from the faith? Jesus wants us to be able to recognize false teaching. And there's, there's so much that fits under that category, like under that, under that umbrella. Um, so we could spend a ton of time going over all the different examples of false teaching, I want to uh, talk about three broad categories of false teaching. Uh, 
now um, that are pretty widespread, have been for a long time. They're not new, but they are things for us to be aware of today. The, uh, the first is the prosperity gospel. And if you're just like new to Christianity, new to faith, the word gospel means good news. So prosperity gospel, the good news that's delivered to you in the prosperity gospel is that God wants you to be healthy and he wants you to be wealthy. And if you have enough faith in him, and often um, if you demonstrate that faith by giving your money to the ministry that's telling you the prosperity gospel, then God is going to bless you with health and wealth and you can claim those promises um, one of the problems with this is the Bible spends a significant amount of time preparing followers of Jesus for hardships in their lives. Like, the Bible's very realistic about how hard life can be. It's not this naively optimistic thing that promises um, once you put your faith in Jesus, you get no problems ever, and you'll be super rich, and, uh, and you know, that's it. The real evil of the prosperity gospel is it so cheapens the gift that Jesus died for to give you, the thing that he wants you to have, your eternal salvation. It cheapens that because it uses the promises of wealth and a long, healthy life here on earth as a more powerful motivator than the promise of eternal salvation. It says, here's what God really wants you to have. Here's what he really cares about you having. Here's what you should desire in your life. Totally cheapens what Jesus does on the cross. And then, the other evil thing it does is it puts the blame on you if you're not healthy and you're not wealthy. That you don't have enough faith. If you had more faith, these these problems would disappear, and so people who believe this false teaching, when they're not healthy, when they're not wealthy, and it's been enough time, they're going to come to the conclusion that either I'm not good enough, or God doesn't love me enough. One of those two things. And then people who are healthy and wealthy, they're going to think, well, God loves me, I'm doing great, and they're going to die and give an account for their lives and find out I wasn't. prosperity gospel, false teaching really has a grip on a large number of people. The second is the progressive gospel, the, the socially progressive gospel. The good news delivered in the progressive gospel is that you are perfect just the way you are. You don't need to change. You know who you are. You can be who you want to be. And, and you don't need to change or repent of anything. The only thing you need to repent of in the, pros, uh, the progressive gospel is the, the idea that could be in your mind that you're not good enough or that anyone else is not good enough. You need to repent of the idea that anyone needs repentance. That's the only thing. The, uh, the progressive gospel, lots of problems in this. It erases many definitions of what is sin it, uh, it transplants a very modern view on all these issues back onto the text of the Bible, which is more than 2,000 years old. And by very modern, I mean the views that are socially acceptable in the Western world within the last 15 years. Very narrowly defined. Because if you go back more than 15 years, if you go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and then, you know, 2,000 years ago, um, what the people who believe in the progressive gospel have to conclude is, well, Christians for 2,000 years were ignorant or hateful, but now we know the truth. Now we know what the Bible actually teaches, and everyone else was getting it wrong until we came along. I think the problems with the progressive gospel are fairly obvious. It tells you you don't need to repent of things that Jesus went to the cross for. What I find ironic with the progressive gospel is it doesn't actually have anything to offer anyone. Like the only thing offered in the progressive gospel is affirmation, which is very shallow, it's very empty. It doesn't have anything to offer because there are lots of people 
who believe the same things that are taught in the progressive gospel, who, who don't know Jesus or care about Jesus at all. They, they believe and think the same things, and so those people, basically all they're being told is, yeah, I agree with you, you're right, and you don't need Jesus to believe those things. They don't actually have something to offer. The third false teaching is what I'll call the performance gospel. The performance gospel, the, the good news that's delivered within the performance gospel is if you follow all the rules and you do all the right things, you can be a good enough person that you can, you can have some confidence about your standing with God. You can have salvation if you follow the rules and, and do the right things. This is one that you find in churches that place a high emphasis on the rules and they care about image, they care about conformity. They're pretty low when it comes to mercy, they're pretty low when it comes to compassion. This is the one that you fall into when, here's how you recognize it, when you're always taught to look at Jesus as an example first. When you look at Jesus as an example first, where he's the perfect man, he shows you how to live, he lived a perfect life, you follow his example. Jesus is a savior first, and an example second. Jesus is a savior who's full of mercy for you, and the true gospel, the real good news that's delivered to you is that although you are a sinner who requires repentance. You need to change and you're not enough, you're not good enough, you can never be good enough to get your own salvation. Jesus gives it to you as a gift. If you would humble yourself and put your faith in him, you can receive it. And this is a gift that will change your life in profound ways, it'll change your heart It'll produce, start to produce all that good fruit in your life. So even though life is still going to be hard and there's no promises that you're going to be healthy and wealthy and you'll never experience any struggles, you'll still have uh, joy and peace and you walk with Jesus through your life. You have the hope of eternal life. Nothing compares to the true gospel. Like nothing promises anything better and nothing more closely aligns with the truth that God gives us in his word. Beware of false teaching. It's real, it's a constant thing for us to be aware of. But Jesus is the good shepherd. Listen to his voice and follow him. Let me pray for us.